Welcome to the AWS Health Innovation Podcast, where you can learn from entrepreneurs and investors who are driving progress in healthcare and life science across the globe. My name is Joe Schunkweiler. I'm a physician and former health tech executive. And my name is Alex Merwin. I'm an operations executive who's worked at two startups that exited as unicorns. And now Joe and I work with healthcare and life science startups and investors at AWS. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by George Netcher from Safely You, which empowers safer, more person-centered dementia care with real-time AI video technology and its remote clinical team. George, Safely You's CEO, is an artificial intelligence engineer with computer vision expertise. He dedicated his career to improving Alzheimer's care after several family members coped with the disease. We discuss the benefits of using technology to detect and see critical care moments for those living with dementia, clinical teams driving continuous improvement with tight feedback loops, and how founders can de-risk their business by focusing on key hires throughout their growth journeys. Enjoy. Welcome, George Netcher, to the podcast from Safely You. Couldn't be more excited to have you here today. I, maybe we can just start with learning a little bit more about your professional journey and background. Yeah, thanks for having me, Alex. Great to be here. Professional journey. This company really started as my PhD research at Berkeley about eight years ago. But really what I say is I'm in year 20 of the 30-year plan <laughs> where I've been really thinking about this company since I was a little boy watching the impact Alzheimer's played on my own family as my mom's mom was impacted, then her big sister, and it just always felt somewhat inevitable that my mom would be impacted by Alzheimer's and combine that with kind of a real love of engineering that I really found in college in particular. And it felt like, okay, there's gotta be some way I could combine these two a passion for building things and building things that can help people and trying to help the kind of specific people that I care about in my life. So once UC Berkeley was in the AI research lab, worked with Trevor Darrell, Alex Bayan there and really explored kind of a number of different projects before we spun this company out, which we really started acting as a company in about 2017. And then went one step at a time from there, raising amounts of funding up through last year, we raised 60 million and are now full out scaling the solution that we've got to help people just like my mom. It's amazing that you're driven by that inner focus and it's such a challenging disease and it can be really tough for families. And to the extent you're comfortable sharing it, when did you know growing up that this was something that was really important to you and that you wanted to dedicate your life toward? Both my parents are immigrants and both are physicians. And so I had the, that combo of just being really thankful for kind of the life I had here and, and all of that and the work ethic that I think comes with being in an immigrant family. And then seeing how kind of fulfilling it was for them as physicians to help people and have the work that they're doing directly help people. I remember, I don't know, we would be going to the movies and people would stop and grab my dad and like he was a hand surgeon and just so effusive and thankful that they could use his hand that they wouldn't have been able to otherwise and how meaningful that can be in people's lives. And so I thought I might be a doctor, but then with engineering, I can not just help the person in front of me, I can build something that can help people even while I'm sleeping at night or eating dinner or whatever, I can build something and take a step back even further. And then through entrepreneurship, you can take a step even further back from that and build a thing that builds things that helps people. And then I think the seeing the impact that Alzheimer's was playing and how stressful it was for my mom, it felt like, okay, this is really the thing. I think it was really my, it was really an undergrad in college that I kind of really came to that conclusion of, I think I'm going to dedicate my life to trying to help people with Alzheimer's and I'm not going to be a doctor. I'm going to go try to build something that helps people with increasingly feels inevitable will be the situation for my mom. And I've got about 10 years. If she follows the same trajectory as the other folks in our family, 
we had about 10 years of portraits at that point. So that's when I felt that kind of that, I don't know, when I made that connection, it was like, okay, the clock is on, let's go time to do whatever I can as quick as I can so that we've got the right things that I want for her. So what does Safely You do? Yeah, so we specifically provide a service for really nursing homes, so assisted living and skilled nursing communities, where we put a camera in the private room for residents that choose to have it. And we really effectively try to give them a voice. Our program, our first product is all based around fall prevention. So what we do is we detect when somebody's had a fall with truly world-leading accuracy. And then we basically alert the local staff and make only that video available. So the key premise there is that we want to give them a voice. So they would want to be able to tell us if they hit their head or not, but they wouldn't want us to be able to see if they were changing in their rooms or whatever else. So only keep that video when we've detected somebody's on the ground along with a little bit before and after. And that really enables the first time that this population with cognitive impairment has access to a remote care model, particularly important during the pandemic. So, you know, you can go Google and there are some really good stories about the impact that how much folks with Alzheimer's were impacted during the pandemic and really how disproportionately they were impacted because they didn't have access to things shifted to telemedicine. It's really hard for somebody with cognitive impairment to access. They can't get on a video call and tell you what they need. So through our program, you can actually see what this person needs for the first time fully remotely. And really the two key insights were that one in a assisted living community, 95% of the falls will be called unwitnessed. So nobody saw it happen. It turns out if you can see what happens about 40% of the time, the person actually didn't fall at all. They yeah. lower themselves to the ground to pray or to tie their shoes, but they can't get back up on their own. They can't tell folks what happened or they can't reliably tell folks. And so they're often sent to the emergency room because we don't know, and they could have hit their head and we need to make sure they're safe. So that's the first big impact. And the second big impact is that if we can see how they're going to the ground, we can take proactive steps to reduce risk for them. So instead of just having this person fall again and again, until, you know, they have that bad head injury, we can see what their unmet needs are, take proactive step steps to provide better support for them. So we've got a team of remote clinicians, so PTOTRN, that basically look at video, do root cause analysis and provide kind of proactive interventions, often medical, but often not medical at all. So. Mm -hmm. For instance, we had one recently where a lady was taking care of these two dolls that she legitimately thinks are her infants. Like she really thinks these are her babies. She's caring for them like her babies. And she's in a twin size bed and there's just not enough room for the three of them in bed together. And they were finding her on the ground and it turned out that actually she was sliding out of bed because she's making room for her babies in bed. And so wow. the intervention was not like to review her medication or get her on physical therapy. It was to get her a bassinet so that her two babies can be safe by her side and she can be in bed and have the babies in, in the bassinet next to her. So it's really oh, wow. kind of understanding, yeah, what are these unmet needs? How can we provide the best person-centered care in ways that obviously save massive amounts for the healthcare system, provide far better care for the individual, great peace of mind for the family, way less work for the staff. It's really just a win-win-win for everybody. Uh, I'd love to see the billing code for adjusting the bassinet <laughs> for, for the two dolls, but it, it's a beautiful example that, uh, patients are people and really the, the, the best thing may just be being sensitive to someone's needs and empathetic and meeting them where they're at. But if you don't know, if you don't know what they need, there's no way that you can possibly do that. So with the cameras, when you install them, do you ever get feedback from patients that maybe they're not familiar with the technology or what is this thing in my room? There's a lot that you can do to safeguard the patient privacy. We'd love to learn more about that. 
Yeah. So we really serve the needs of folks with Alzheimer's and dementia, other forms of cognitive impairment. So folks with had strokes, veterans that have had traumatic brain injuries or folks that have been in car accidents. So often the folks that we are serving are not opting on themselves. It's there's a loved one who has the surrogate decision maker or power of attorney that's opting in on their behalf. And we are meeting kind of the needs of both folks. And typically it's a family member who's thinking about, okay, what would this person want? And would this person want a video on them all the time? Or what are their privacy concerns? Things like that. We get, we track this quarter over quarter. We get about 90% opt-in. I think we're at like 92%. And so folks basically have a right to privacy legal within the communities we serve. And they need to waive that right to privacy and opt into the program. We take great pride in that 90% opt-in rate, knowing that I think we all saw through the pandemic, things like opting in for, I don't know, mask adherence. <laughs> if you can get 90% opt-in on anything, it's a big deal and you're really helping folks. So typically the concerns are about privacy. They're about liability for the community and they're about security. We take great pride in that 90% opt-in. We're the first fall prevention program ever that a liability insurance carrier will subsidize. And we're getting an increasing number there just based on the impact we've had on falls. And it turns out falls are the number one reason that our customers get litigated against. So being able to make a massive reduction in falls and all of that is, is really meaningful for our customers and really the holy grail of this industry. Like it feels, I get goosebumps looking at our data. It feels so good to be at the point where we are. And then security. So we're fully HIPAA compliant. We take all the steps around data encryption and things like that. And obviously security is just critical doing stuff like this. Shout out to AWS. We do use AWS to take advantage of lots of the security features available there. That's fantastic. Yeah, the, you said it all with the opt-in numbers. And I think the key thing here is separating perception from reality. And there are ways that you could architect the solution to safeguard patient privacy as a built-in artifact of the product itself. Frequently, you just have fear, uncertainty, and doubt on behalf of the buyer or other stakeholders about like how data is going to be used, interpreted, but really it needs to be balanced against the benefit. And clearly you're able to communicate that nuance and engage your stakeholders for them to be able to opt into the solution at that rate. I think it's like any healthcare startup, you have so many different types of stakeholders. And the only way you get the jaw-dropping growth that you want in a healthcare startup is if every stakeholder has that same kind of reaction. You need the mm -hmm. staff to say, this saves me so much time and takes so much stress off my job and whatever. You need the family saying, oh my God, we're, the impact this is making on how much we were going to the emergency room all the time and now we're not, and this is incredible. And the impact it makes for the customer and their either their litigation or really their sales and marketing is a big driver, or all sorts of stuff like that. You need that same, I think that's what makes a healthcare startup so hard is that you have so many different stakeholders and you need every one of them having that level of reaction to really be able to hit that growth. I think that's right. And the switching costs are so high that if you don't have that dramatic of a value add, it's just not going to be worth the investment to make it happen. On that note, I love the anecdote about the dolls. Would you be open to sharing enough story about a patient or it could even be one of the, one of the homes that you, that you work with that they saw that value, right? Where you really provided them with something that they couldn't otherwise do. Yeah. There's so many, cause I think our product really is just a story machine. We're seeing on video folks in a really hard situation. And then our clinical team is working on figuring out what are the best steps to take. Often it's a series of unpacking various things. Then we get these just amazing moments where they have really made an impact and we're really driving down the fall rate. We might want it more kind of organization level. We did an analysis with one of our first customers, Carlton Senior Living, about 
the basically the length of stay for their residents. And we're prepping this for a journal publication right now. So obviously for their customer retention, it can mean a lot if you can keep folks healthy and happy and safe and extend how long a resident will stay with you because these places are not cheap. The average cost for memory care is $7,000 a month in this country that you're paying out of pocket, right? This is not covered by Medicare, Medicaid. And so it's really expensive, really hard on families and anything you can do to bring down the cost, like keeping them out of the emergency room is so meaningful. So we did an analysis across the seven locations that we had for I think, two years at the time and, or three years at the time. And what we saw was that we, on average, the length of stay for folks that were using the program was double that of the folks that were not using the program, which is just like incredible and super, super meaningful for the organization. And as we drilled into the data, what we saw was that in the first 90 days, the residents that were on the program were eight times more likely or eight times less likely to leave basically. So in the first 90 days, the likelihood of somebody leaving eight times smaller if they're using our program, which is just incredible. It's just like completely hits like, I think a lot of folks are not, you know, might move into assisted living and then move back out because they're not getting what they need or they have a serious fall or they don't expect it to cost. Yes, I'm already paying $7,000 for month, a month for rent, but holy crap, I'm also being sent to the emergency room and all this stuff. I have all these other costs that I didn't anticipate. And so being able to see that in the data and, you know, what we've heard anecdotally, we have families call us and tell us how meaningful it is. And anecdotally, that feels incredible, but being able to really see in the data, holy crap, eight times less likely to leave, obviously really meaningful for the business. And the first time that kind of impact on this say is really ever been shown in our industry with the statistical significance we have. We see the stories, but we also get to unpack the data and that's when you really get the goosebumps. That is the best part. The, as long as it's calibrated in, in context, the, we can trust the data and love where it guides us. You said it earlier that one of the key outcomes that you've learned is that 40% of reported falls aren't falls. Now it's people deliberately going down. And if you, if a carer finds a patient on the ground, they have no way of knowing how they got there and they're going to need to assume the worst and perhaps send them into a hospital for a scan. Who wants to go to the hospital full stop, right? But particularly suffering from these conditions and you really need to be comfortable in place. The experience would be quite stressful. So I wonder as well if like patients are just having a better experience because they're just not going to the hospital as much if the care team knows that they just deliberately got down. Without a doubt. So it's known that you will have setbacks in resident condition and things like that. When you're sending folks out, you're also often missing out on the times that you would be billing. You're, you often won't get them back. Like they may go to the hospital and not come back to be one of your residents. But I think the most striking, and then for families as well, just to touch on that note, the, you don't, you know, that often they're just sitting on the ground, but you're not going to not get up at 2 a.m. and go to the emergency room with them because what if they mm. actually hit their head and this could be your last moment. And then during the pandemic, families often couldn't go in, right? And like this happened to my mother-in-law where she was sent to the emergency room, but the my wife and her dad were waiting in the parking lot outside. And then they found out that she had actually been sent to a different hospital. <laughs> they were sitting at the wrong hospital in the middle of the night and you're just sitting there not knowing if your loved one is even being seen and all of that. And then these are folks that you can't quarantine. So they might get exposed to COVID in the ER and then bring it back to a nursing home and they wander room to room. It's really hard to keep them isolated. It's really hard to keep a mask on. And so they're 
it's really hard to keep it from spreading within a nursing home. And so the worst thing mm. that we could do during that time was send them to the place where they're most likely to get exposed. But our system, if they did have a serious head injury, like we need to attend to it. So it's a really tough time. What about a story on the other key finding that you found from some of your successes so far? It was more focused on the care teams and how they can learn what's causing falls and they can adapt and change some of their policies and procedures. Have you seen any teams really leverage this as a new, new means of drive, driving continuous improvement? Oh, for sure. For sure. So really what we're bringing are tight feedback loops to care for the first time, especially for this population that, you know, would complain if, you know, they weren't being cared properly. This population doesn't have that voice. They can't really tell you when they, you know, were on the ground for an hour, things like that. And in, in fact, some of our big successes have come when a resident thought they were on the ground, say for four hours. And we could see in the video, actually they were on the ground for four minutes mm. and how meaningful that is for families when you don't necessarily have trust in the community that is supporting your mom, or especially if they're telling your mom or dad is saying, these people treat me like this. They leave me on the ground for all this time. We can show on the video. It's not that this person is lying, right? Like they have cognitive impairment. They like legitimately think that they were on the ground for that long and can show that the staff actually are providing exceptional care. So I think bringing those tight feedback loops around reducing the number of falls has been extremely meaningful. So we'll remove those 40% that you thought were fall, but were actually the resident going around intentionally. We also will reduce the number of falls. So the number of times someone's going around to begin with by about 50%, which has truly been the holy grail in this space. Can you actually reduce the number of falls? And we just did an analysis of our data from the last year and showed with 3000 people that we reduced the number of falls by 50%. That's incredible. That is the first time it's been shown with that big of a sample size, with that big of an order of magnitude. That is huge impacts across the healthcare system. So just incredible to be at that point. And that's around having those tight feedback loops around quickly understanding how's this person going on the ground? What can we change before that injury is happening? Folks think that every fall is a really dramatic event. Actually, someone will fall many times before they have that serious injury. And if we can understand how they're going on the ground and make proactive change, that is extremely meaningful. I think what you're alluding to is we also have tight feedback loops around kind of staff training and at a time when there is so much staff turnover, being able to empower staff is super meaningful. So whether it's things like lift technique, where that's the number one cause of workers comp claims and being able to see that, oh, this person did this lift as a one person assist, should have done a two person assist and being able to provide that empowerment and tight feedback loops has been really meaningful in a lot of different ways They're around like good dementia care. Does a staff member lower down and get the person to pillow and things like that, that are super meaningful around providing just best practices in care. We can kind of effectively through our program, bring both take the amount of work off the local staff, but also bring a level of expertise through this remote model in a way that makes sense cost-wise and all of that. And really it just has never been possible before. So the vision is that the AI can be there so that you don't need to be there all the time. And then the remote team can be there. So you can be empowered to know exactly what to do for your loved one, wherever you are. So our vision is very much really elevate standard of what we can provide for folks with cognitive impairment. The numbers are fantastic. And the most important thing is you really change in the experience for the people that you're helping. And you've created this technology that really blends into the background, right? Which is exactly what we hope where people can earn the benefits. So they're not tied behind two-factor authentication or downloading an app or dealing with like different point of care solutions. It can get very abstract and banal quite quickly. And so you've really created an elegant solution that that clearly is working. The go-to-market motion is really challenging in healthcare due to the different economic buyers. 
So I'd really love to hear what you've been doing so far for who pays for the service and how you're thinking about go-to-market now that you have these validation metrics and you know that it works. Obviously, you're always getting better and better, but we, the emphasis through, I don't know, our, we did our Series A in May of last year and then our Series B in around September, September, October. So 20 million and then 40 million. And the lead up to that was really feeling like we had cracked at least the first, the first degree, the, the go-to-market motion. And I think the key in this space for us has been land and expand, basically, that there has not been a billion dollar company in this space. There hasn't really been technology companies that really meet the needs of folks in this space. And so with that, and obviously risk averse industry, given that they're caring for real people's lives and all of that, there can be longer sales cycles, given that there are so many different stakeholders. I think it's really just understanding the trade-offs of that. Uh, folks do need to take their time to try a solution out, make sure it works for them. And if that's the case, you really need to make sure that you're getting big expansions on the other side. And so the number one thing that has driven our growth is that our customers will expand our service 3x year over year on average. We can show that basically two years later, folks will be taxed larger with us. So we put our foot in the door, show how meaningful the service is, and then folks expanded as they're seeing the impact for their business, the impact for their residents, and so on. Then there's ways we can go faster and faster, obviously one step at a time, but we really have built like a brand in this space, which has been incredible that we are working with the names in the space, the largest enterprises we've made you know, got incredible results with them that we can show kind of to the rest of the industry and, and things like that. So I think it's just one step at a time, but then also really kind of recognizing the trade-offs in your business and structuring things around them. So for instance, at fundraising, recognizing that if your growth model is based around land and expand, that might take a little bit longer to prove out because you need to be able to land and then expand those customers. And so just making sure you're fundraising enough to be able to have more than one swing at the pad and and that you've got supportive investors that are coming along with you for the ride. The what about your internal team as you've as you grow the business out? How do you think about the safely you culture? I uh, you know how do you approach team building and creating a culture where people they're really leaning in and scaling with the business? And honestly, that's like the most important thing in the world, right? You can screw almost everything up, but if you're pointing the ship in the right direction and you've got the right folks, will figure a lot of stuff out. For us, it's really been about we are a mission driven company, and so. A lot of the folks on our team are personally impacted by Alzheimer's and really everybody here is here because they want to make a positive impact with their work. And when that's the case, like when you're looking at a video and you're thinking about your mom or your dad and you're building things, you're not selling anything that you wouldn't want your own mom or dad to have. So we're never over marketing or over promising. We're always setting expectations, over delivering on them. We're going the extra mile across the team, whether it's engineering, product, sales, marketing. People are doing what they would want for their own loved one. So if a service goes down, for instance, like it's incredible to see the engineers all hands on deck, figure stuff out and be able to really drive like the, the reputation that we've built really is incredible and comes from that. And so I think it's about hiring people that really care deeply about the problem and then hiring people that are better than you in a whole bunch of different areas. The founder is never going to be an expert in sales and engineering and marketing and whatever. So you find people that have done it before and are far smarter than you in specific areas and then looking to empower. And now we just passed the hundred employee mark looking to build the next generation. Now empowering the people that, you know, were the first crop of leadership team to now build kind of their own team of lieutenants and things like that. And so now that you're passing hundred employees, what are your next key hires? Are there certain areas of the organization that 
you think are really important that you hire, you need to hire well everywhere. So it's a poorly framed question, but you're achieving a point where the teams won't organically know or have visibility on what others are doing. So it'd be great to hear about who, who else do you think you need right now on the team? And my last question for you is actually, what do you need or want from our global health innovation community? So this kind of leads into it if you're looking to hire certain roles, but would love to hear about from a people perspective, gaps you're looking to bridge over the coming six, six months with new hires. We're always just looking for good people. So I think folks are listening and feel a strong connection to Alzheimer's disease. Regardless of role, reach out. Like we're just always looking for really good people. The then to answer your question more directly, really the first six months of this year were focused on a couple of key hires for me. So maybe I'll answer it in that kind of looking back over the last six months, because now I've really made my key hires and now it's all about us investing in each other and executing together. But the way I had gone about building the company was really going one step at a time and thinking about what are the biggest risks facing the business at each point? Early on, I was like, if we build this, will people even care? And we worked on several projects. This was the one where we really saw the jaw-dropping reaction from folks. Then it was, is it technically feasible? Can the AI even work? Is this even a solvable problem? Or, you know, are we just going to have such a high false alarm rate or whatever else that it, you really can't even build this? And then it was, can we figure out the go-to-market motion that this can be a venture-backable business and all of that? So that meant basically we... Our first customer started in 2019 and then in 2019 and 2020, we were basically showing that kind of go to market motion and then starting to scale in 2021. And so that meant I was very focused on kind of sales and marketing and really had kind of goosebumps level feeling about my leadership team on that side, but I hadn't been as focused on the engineering side and product side. And so at the start of this year, we brought on a CTO, we brought on a VP product, we brought on a head of product, we brought on a VP hardware engineering. And that has been really a joy to see us building up the, um, I don't know, the muscle to not just scale our existing business and deliver on our existing use cases, but now all the stuff we've known is possible and been dreaming about for so long, we've really earned the right to start proliferating out use cases and seeing those folks come up to speed and all of the things that they're creating that I wouldn't have even thought about has been kind of really a joy. So basically we had been focused on one piece of a business at the time, at a time, proving it out. And now that we're focused on scaling, we kind of are looking at how do we pull all of that together and do all of it simultaneously. So it's not just George doing the product work at the very beginning, but now how do we do all of the things at the same time so that we're not just scaling our existing thing, but investing in what's coming next and all of that, which for me, it's really the fun part that I've been dreaming about this for a long time and known certain things were feasible. And now we've earned the right and get to do it and seeing customers react to some of the stuff we've been dreaming about for forever and seeing the AI team execute on some product features has been really cool. George, not sure from Safely, you've left me inspired. I can't wait to see what you know you and the team crank out and release next with the new strength on the bench. Do you have any closing thoughts you want to share with our audience? Any recent announcements or other areas you're looking for collaboration? So this month is Fall Prevention Awareness Month. The first day of fall is how we kick off Fall Prevention Awareness Month. We did a big survey of the industry to gather a bunch of really interesting insights, like actually how much does it cost? How much does a fall cost an assisted living operator, for instance, who doesn't actually pay anything when if they send someone to the emergency room, Medicare and the family co-pays are covering that, right? So how, do, how does this industry even really pay for care? and like justify expenses in care. We've done kind of a lot of thought into that. We're publishing a big report there. And then hand in hand with that, we did a big analysis of, of our data, which I mentioned, and the results there just 
Incredible. So I think if you're interested in learning more about this space or seeing some of our data, we are really defining the path that I hope so many will follow that we will be the first billion dollar company in this space, be the SpaceX or the Tesla that shows you can build a billion dollar company in this space that so many other entrepreneurs can follow. And we can just drive more and more tech investment and do more and more good for folks where there are just so many opportunities and cracking the go-to-market nut has been the hard part to please, you know, let's do it together. <laughs> I hope that we can be that first billion dollar company and do something that others can follow. Wonderful. Thank you. And for those listening later, this is in September. So mark your calendars every year, September fall prevention month, and do what you can to evangelize for a subject, which for those affected by it really means a lot. George, thank you so much for the time. And I hope you have a great day. Awesome. Thanks so much, Alex. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and rating. It helps others find us. To learn more about how AWS supports startups, please go to aws.amazon.com slash startups.